Things have simply not been the same for Dalton Whitworth since the carriage accident. Colors are not as vivid, music not nearly as pleasurable. Every meal he consumes is bland and leaves an unsavory aftertaste. Days filled with sunlight are no longer warm, enjoyable experiences. On the contrary, he finds the light to be oppressive, causing his eyes, head, and neck to be in the constant state of discomfort and torment. Dalton has previously enjoyed these simple pleasures in his life, even as recently as last month, until the accident that took away his beloved Rachel. Now he feels as if he spends all his effort avoiding everything. He dreads having to eat yet another tasteless dinner. He stays indoors as much as possible, only daring to venture out long enough to acquire the necessities for survival. He goes out of his way to avoid human contact. Even though his circle of acquaintances showed great care and sympathy for him upon the loss of his wife, he'd much prefer to be left alone now. If, by chance, he did encounter a familiar face in public, he knew the conversation would invariably turned toward his tragic experience, forcing him to relive the nightmare. He would again see in his mind the spooked horse on its hind legs, the carriage jolting harshly, Rachel letting out the briefest of screams as she is thrown from her seated position atop the open-air coach, the cobblestone pavement, the blood pooling under her lifeless form, his helpless inability to alter the outcome. Dalton cannot bear these images any longer and he's frightened of closing his eyes for fear of being accosted once again by these horrific visions. He passes the days in his apartment reading by dim gaslights, anything he can get his hands on, novels, textbooks, newspapers, and other periodicals, packaging for common household products, anything that will help him escape. When he's not reading... He extinguishes the gaslight and sits in his armchair near the only window in his tiny quarters. He pulls back the heavy, dense curtain just enough for one eye to ingest the world outside. He's careful not to allow an overabundance of sunlight into the dark room. People outside go about their happy lives, content and oblivious to the dark matters that one who has suffered a loss must endure. On one particular morning when Dalton awoke, he was immediately confronted with an odd sensation. Something wasn't quite right. He was in the habit of standing at the foot of his bed every morning and facing the mirror as he dressed. He did so to this day as well, but with the exception that the image being reflected did not appear as it had upon other days. He wasn't able to pinpoint its inaccuracy until he attempted to button his jacket the same jacket he wore most days. This day, the button second from the top was no longer visible in his reflection. This had never been the case before, and Dalton was uncertain of how such a discrepancy might have occurred. Have I grown shorter overnight? Has the mirror been raised on the wall? Nonsense. These options were impossible. All throughout the day, as Dalton made his way around the apartment, his rhythm seemed to be off. After years of living in the same rooms, among the same unmoved furnishings, one develops a sense of rhythm to their comings and goings. Eight steps to the armchair, five more to the front door, a slight inward turn of the left foot while entering the bedroom, lest one's toe be stubbed on the protruding dresser again. These were all subconscious, of course 
There's no actual counting or calculation involved, but the human mind takes note of these nuances internally and builds its own map of the landscape. Movements are subliminally adjusted to achieve the utmost efficiency to the point where it is possible to flawlessly navigate the surroundings even in complete darkness. Dalton was not in complete darkness, and yet he continued to stumble throughout the day. The size of his shoes bumped corners of walls. He approached the bookshelf from his armchair in seven steps instead of eight. His top hat grazed the overhead gas lamp in the main hallway. At dinner, he slid his chair out from under the table to the point that it was touching the wall, and yet he was still barely able to squeeze himself between the table and chair in order to sit for his meal. Later that night, after he finished his reading in the dim light, he reached to extinguish the lamp and clumsily jammed his finger against the brass fixture. It hadn't been so close last night, he thought, while rubbing the pain away. Sleep did not come easily that night. Dalton tossed and turned in a feverish heat of sounds and images in his mind, the horse neighing loudly as it bolted away, Rachel helplessly tumbling from the side of the accelerating carriage, Dalton lying next to her on the ground, calling her name, trying to rouse her, fighting his tears. The following morning, Dalton noticed his red eyes in the dark circles underneath them as he dressed in the mirror. However, this was not the only startling revelation. As he buttoned his coat, he also noticed that the top button was no longer visible in the viewing pane. A rush of adrenaline flowed through his body, leaving him with a brief pain in his chest and a sweat beginning to emerge on his brow. He took a step backward, but it was not enough to bring the button in view. One more step backward and he stumbled against the footrail of his bed. This can't be. Am I going mad? He pondered. He became lightheaded and was overwhelmed with the urge to sit. He made his way down the hall to the armchair and fell into its velvety comfort. After a time of rest and catching his bearings, Dalton proceeded to the bookshelf. He could have sworn it only took six steps this time to peruse for an item to read. Once he selected his book, he settled into the chair once more to immerse himself in a world far from his own. Dalton woke abruptly. He had no idea how long he had slumbered in his reading chair. The remaining light in the apartment was dim, and one quick glance behind the thick curtain revealed a deep indigo-dusky sky. To his astonishment, Dalton realized that he'd passed the bulk of the daylight hours unconscious. He'd even forgotten that he had been reading until he found the book face down on the floor next to the armchair. He rose from the chair and stumbled a bit, still unstable from his lengthy nap. Upon making his way to the bedroom, he nearly ran full steam into the wall at the end of the hallway. He'd reached the end a full three paces sooner than before. Suddenly, he felt fully awake. His annoyance at this scenario having grown to its peak, he decided to investigate further, to prove once and for all that he wasn't going completely stark raving mad. He retrieved a broomstick and laid it on the hallway floor with its end touching the wall. He marked the other end with his finger pressed tightly against the floor and then slid the stick forward until it aligned with his marked finger. Repeating this process all down the corridor, he determined that it took six full lengths of the broomstick with a remaining space of about ten inches, 
that last portion he estimated in his mind, to reach the front door. He noted this dimension on the inside cover of a book he'd picked up off the floor and vowed to measure again soon. Before going to bed that evening, Dalton paused to have a look at his reflection in the mirror once more. He stood with the back of his calves, touching the footboard of the bed. He almost broke down in tears when he saw the sickly man in the reflection, a shadow of the man he was before losing Rachel. Aside from his startling visage, he took a note of the truncated image. Now his face was only visible down to the chin, no neckline, no buttons on his coat. He reached his arms out before him and was able to touch the wall with his fingertips. Something never before possible, as the wall had always been a good seven feet from the foot of the bed. Defeated, he hung his head, removed his outer clothing, and crawled into bed, hoping to sleep indefinitely, not minding if he ever woke again. But... Awaken he did. He'd slept soundly all night long, only stirring momentarily when thoughts of the accident attempted to encroach on his dreams. It was morning light now, and the first thing that Dalton noticed was something pressing against his bare foot. Still in a fog, he bent his already stiff neck downward to catch a glimpse of what it was that had come into contact with him. A swell of panic and fear overtook him when he determined that it was the wall, the mirror on it, pressed all the way up against the foot rails of his bed. Dalton jolted his neck to the opposite way to see the space behind the headboard. It was still snugly against the opposing wall. His heart raced with dread at this unexplainable event. His mind did not know how to process this information. He exited the bed on the left side and squeezed past the pressing walls and through the doorway into the hall. After retrieving the measuring broomstick, he employed it to measure the hallway a second time. His hands shook, but he was careful to line up the stick accurately at each interval. Upon reaching the front door, he nearly fainted to find that he'd only counted four and a half lengths of the stick. What is happening to me? He cried out to no one as he collapsed onto the floor. He sobbed openly, not only because of the strange predicament, but also for his current condition and for Rachel, who had brought such peace and contentment into his life of just a month prior. How could things change so quickly? After regaining his composure, Dalton was overwhelmed with the desire to flee, to get out of that oppressive apartment, even if only temporarily. As much as the idea frightened him, he decided to pass the daylight hours outdoors. Where exactly he would go, he did not yet know. He picked himself up off the floor, found his hat and overcoat, and made his way to the front door, noting how it took fewer steps to approach it. Dalton walked along the cobblestone path through town. He stared at the ground as he walked, hoping that no one would try to speak to him or even make eye contact. No one did. Turning the corner, a leather tanning shop, he had to divert his path as the store owner came bursting out of the front door of the shop and threw a bucket of wastewater into the street, nearly wetting Dalton's shoes. How 
completely rude and insensitive, Dalton thought, though he did not speak to the man. He continued on toward an area free of business, buildings, and the commotion of life, a park-like area with benches, a pond, and trees displaying their colorful autumn foliage. Dalton sat on the nearest park bench upon entering the clearing. It was relatively calm and peaceful since it was mid-morning on a weekday. The only other patrons were a mother feeding ducks in the pond with her toddler son, an elderly gentleman sitting on a bench opposite Dalton reading a newspaper, and the occasional passerby on their way to more important things. Dalton sat and observed until he felt his eyelids getting heavy. The breeze and the silence lulled him. The cloud cover was a thick gray blanket, preventing any harsh sunlight, much to Dalton's delight. Even so, it was unreasonably warm, which only furthered his sleepiness. As he was on the verge of crossing the threshold into dream territory, he saw a woman in a pink dress pass by in front of him. He was startled and followed her with his eyes as she approached the pond. Jolting to full alertness, Dalton's heart began to pound as his mind guided him toward this inevitable thought. My god, she looks just like Rachel. He could feel his pulse throbbing in his neck. He stood and slowly approached the woman from behind. When he was standing just adjacent to her, he mustered the courage to speak. Rachel? He asked in almost a whisper, his voice weak and quivering. The woman turned and looked him directly in the eye. It's her. By God, it's her, he thought. Dalton! Her voice was filled with relief and longing as if the wife of a military man being reunited with her husband after long months apart. They immediately embraced. Rachel's head pressed tightly into Dalton's shoulder. They both wept. Dalton repressed the confusion in his mind of how this could be possible didn't matter to him. His precious wife had returned to him, and he wanted to revel in that fact, plausibility be damned. The longer the embrace lingered, the more Dalton noticed the heaviness of Rachel leaning on him, the slackness of her body. Soon, it felt to Dalton as if he were supporting her entire weight. She'd gone completely limp in his arms, still holding the embrace. They collapsed to the ground together, Dalton attempting to ease his wife's descent. It wasn't until they reached the ground that her head fell away from his shoulder, revealing the truth. Dalton recoiled in horror upon seeing the decaying face of his once lovely bride. Her eye sockets were sunken and deep, her jaw slacked open to an impossibly wide angle. Her complexion was gray and flecked with dry, cracked areas. Her hair, previously beautiful and one of Dalton's favorite features about her, was now thin and stringy, matted to the shape of her head. Rachel's lifeless body fell away onto the stone walkway as Dalton pulled his arms away in disgust. He felt the pain of losing her all over again, fresh as the first day it happened. Dalton jolted awake to find himself still sitting on the park bench. He nervously looked around to see if anyone had noticed his startled awakening. He hoped he'd not screamed out in his sleep. He was relieved to find that there was no one around. The woman with her young boy, gone. The old man reading the paper, gone. 
The sky was now a much darker shade of gray. The clouds had thickened to the point that it appeared it may rain at any moment. How long had you been sitting there? What felt like minutes could possibly have been hours. As Dalton stood to make his way back to his apartment, the first raindrops began to fall. He was thoroughly soaked as he stood in front of his apartment door and fumbled with the key. In his haste, he dropped it into a puddle, then bent over to retrieve it. And once he finally managed the lock, he pushed the door open but was dumbfounded when it hit a hard object after having only opened up a third of the way. He backed the door up a few inches and pushed it again with the same result. Dalton turned sideways and stuck his head and right shoulder into the dark foyer in an attempt to observe the obstruction. Pressed up firmly against the door was his favorite velvety armchair. This is madness, he said aloud, still standing in the soaking deluge. He took several steps back out into the street. The building appeared no different outside. He returned to the doorway and pushed hard enough to slide the chair a small amount, just enough to squeeze through and into his apartment. What he found was completely astonishing. The size of the space inside had diminished to the point that the furniture was gathered in the center of the room, walls pressing in on all sides. He had to remove his hat and crouch down lest his head hit the ceiling. There was no need for Dalton to measure in order to confirm his suspicions. The room was so small now that he couldn't even walk through it without stepping over furnishings that had once been placed feet apart from each other. The hallway was practically non-existent, and he reached his bedroom in only three steps, turning sideways to squeeze between its walls. He had to step up onto his bed as he crossed the threshold into the room. The walls touched the bed on all sides, and the mirror had fallen onto the foot of his bed face down. Dalton sat on his bed and turned the mirror over. He did not recognize the man staring back at him. Pale, gaunt, sickly, haunted. Not knowing what else to do, he lay on his bed and waited. Waited for what? He didn't know exactly. For the walls to consume him, he supposed. For the ceiling to drop down and crush the last breath from his lungs. He was ready. He was resigned. There was rumbling when the walls and ceilings shifted again. This was the first time Dalton had witnessed the movement himself. It was alarming at first, but he knew it was inevitable. He accepted the dust that flaked onto his face as the ceiling dropped inches more. He welcomed it, even. The head and the footboards of his bed cracked and splintered as they buckled under the pressure from the wall on either side. The gaslight fixture mounted on the ceiling touched the mattress next to him. He held the mirror flat against his chest. There was no longer room enough to stand it upright. More rumbling. The mattress bent and formed a tomb around Dalton. He closed his eyes and waited. He waited until he lost consciousness and all was black. Dalton's eyes slowly opened. He was enveloped in complete darkness. He 
for groggy and his head was pounding. It took several minutes to come out of the fog, but once he did, it was as if he hadn't felt this clear-minded in quite some time. He was alive. Not only that, but he wanted to live. He felt the energy of revitalized life flowing through him. Memories came rushing back. In his mind's eye, he saw what a lovely day with Rachel. He saw them mounting the carriage together after their evening meal at DuPont's Bistro. He saw the spooked horse rear up. He remembered the severe jolting of the carriage. He saw his wife plummeting to the ground. He saw himself also falling harshly onto the pavement stones, his head slamming against them violently. Everything after that was blackness. Dalton was barely able to move. When he finally regained a small amount of control over his limbs, he felt around for his surroundings. His hands found the edges of his confines quickly. They were soft, satin-like walls up to his shoulders and inches from his face. The ceiling directly in front of him felt as if it had an arch shape to it. Awakening further, he determined that he could not move his body beyond this position. He was lying in a depression that fit snugly against him. The air was thick and musty, barely breathable. It hurt his lungs to inhale it too deeply. Sweat formed on his brow as he realized the full extent of his environment. Panic set in. No! He yelled, using up some of the remaining stale air inside. I'm not dead! He banged his fist against the lid as best he could within the limited space, but it only created a muffled thud on the soft interior. Dalton screamed and began sobbing. When he tried to take more air into his lungs, it felt like someone had placed a pillow over his face. He labored to inhale again. Approximately six feet above him was a marker which bore two names. Rachel A. Whitworth on the left side, and Dalton G. Whitworth on the right. Below each was inscribed a date of birth and a date of death, the dates of death being identical. In between the names was chiseled into the stone, together in life, together in death. Two days after the burial, two lone mourners, co-workers of Dalton's, visited the gravesite to place flowers. They stood in their top hats and overcoats, staring solemnly at the headstone. It's a shame he didn't recover from his coma, one grieving man said to another. Indeed, the second man responded. I do wonder, though, said the first co-worker. Do you suppose... Someone in that state knows. I mean, are they capable of thinking? Dreaming? After some thought, the second man dismissed the idea. Nah, I doubt it. But Dalton Whitworth, if he were here today, would beg to differ. Yes, he would say. We are capable of thinking and dreaming. And it is vivid as life itself. Quick question to everyone. Two things, actually. 
Do you suffer from claustrophobia yourself? Personally, I don't. My mom does. She hates small spaces and like really tight crowds. I've never really had too much of an issue with it. Um, and second, were you ever afraid of being buried alive before you realized that that's pretty unlikely nowadays? Pretty much impossible to be buried alive at this point, I think. It was something I was afraid of a lot growing up um, until I realized I could just be cremated. And that's what I've decided to do. So, I don't know. I, I'm scared of much less reasonable things now, like cornfields. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, let me know what your biggest fear is down in the comment section below. And while you're thinking about it, take a listen to our next story. Last summer, I flew back to my hometown for a school reunion. It'd been almost three years since I'd graduated from school, and aside from close friends, I heard nothing from the rest of my classmates. The reunion took place at the school itself, lasting till midnight. I arrived home early that day, giving me time to catch up with my family before I headed down. At the reunion, almost everybody had turned up. There was food, drink, and plenty of time to get up to date with what had been going on in everybody's lives. Girls I hadn't seen in ages fussed over me in a motherly way, saying things like, Oh my goodness, and you're so grown up. Then everybody went round talking to nearly everybody else, asking and answering all manner of questions. For the first two hours ago, some of our former teachers who still taught at the school were there, which was nice. Then they left before sundown. As the night drew to a close and most people began to head home, I and a few others hung around outside the school hall. I leaned against the railing and sipped lemonade while listening to the conversation. One of the girls asked about a certain boy who hadn't turned up. Said he couldn't be bothered, explained another. Said he's going on vacation with his college friends or something. <sighs> Typical, someone commented. And they all began to reminisce about how antisocial that particular classmate of ours had been. As they talked, my mind drifted off elsewhere. I tried to think of who else hadn't turned up. Among a few other absentees, one person stood out. Maisie, a tall, quiet girl who had been in many of my classes. Hey, did any of you see Maisie Heathen? I posed the question out of the blue. The others quieted down, registered the name, and thought about it, shook their heads. Nah, said one boy. But let's be honest, she was probably the least likely to turn up. That means she hardly turned up at school some weeks. Yeah, said one girl sarcastically. Says the guy who skipped school to play video games. At least she still got respectable grades. Well, no need to get personal, the boy grinned. Her attendance didn't really make a difference anyway. She was naturally smart. <laughs> Unlike you, right? The girl teased him. The others continued bantering while I thought about Maisie. It struck me that she hadn't entered my thoughts for so long. Three years at university, many miles away with another set of friends in another town had taken their toll. It felt like all the excitement of student life had made me move on from this small world which was my old school. And in moving on, I'd forgotten so much. Didn't she go to Oxford or something? I heard someone ask. I turned back into the conversation as they were talking about Maisie. Wouldn't be surprised. 
pretty sure she applied there. Yeah, and she got in. I remember seeing Mr. Thompson congratulating her on it. She was... odd, remarked a boy named Joe. Nice, but sort of in her own world, if you know what I mean. Hmm. I nodded. I knew what Joe meant. So anybody know what she's up to now? Anybody in touch? Asked Joe. We all shrugged. Maisie uh, went missing last year, said a low voice from a few yards away. We looked up to see a man's outline standing in the darkness. He stepped into the light. It was a former classmate, David, who had been eavesdropping from the shadows. Huh? I looked at him stupidly, suddenly feeling cold. She went missing last year, he repeated. Still haven't found her. We all exchanged uncomfortable glances. Come off it, David, I heard a girl say. Stop trying to frighten us. David came and leaned against the railing beside me. I'm not really trying to be funny, he said. You know I'm not known for my sense of humor. It was true. David, a lanky kid with glasses, had always been rather serious. Honestly, that's what I heard, at least. My parents told me about it when it happened last autumn. People were talking about it in church. The family was stressed. Everybody was trying to console them. Nobody said anything for a while. The party had become noticeably quiet, and people were leaving by the minute. That's weird, a girl said. Do you know what happened? How did it happen? Where? I don't know the little details, but I do know that she'd gone on a trip alone. Apparently she'd wanted to get away from everything for a while. She'd booked some cottage in the middle of nowhere, gone to live there by herself, and... After a few days, vanished. That's terrible, someone remarked. I don't remember who, as I was too caught up in my own thoughts. Vanished, I wondered. What on earth could have happened? Surely the gathering dispersed, and we all went home. Joe offered me a lift, which I accepted. We hardly spoke, and when he dropped me off, we exchanged short but sincere goodbyes. Something was seriously wrong. Maisie had disappeared and not been found. That in itself was inherently a frightening thing, but I had a nagging feeling that there was something greater behind her disappearance. Something that had been building up over the years. I feel like I knew something about what might have happened, but for some strange reason I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was. I lay awake that night trying to think back into the past. Slowly it all came back to me, and when it did, I shivered. Maisie had joined my secondary school in year 13, the final school year. From her first day onwards, she kept to herself. She was a tall, delicately made girl with refined features, with her prominent gray eyes, dainty nose, and flaxen hair neatly bound in a single braid. Most agreed that she was pretty. She usually sat alone in class and spent more time gazing out the window than paying attention to the teacher. 
In spite of this, she got high marks in most exams, and although she hardly took part in athletics, when she did turn up, she could outrun even most of the boys. Over time, her reclusiveness earned her disdain from some members of the class. Her high achievement only made them resent her more. I, on the other hand, felt bad whenever I saw her, and more than a little curious as to know what was up with her. She never seemed to be all there. It was as if she was constantly engrossed in another faraway dimension at the time. I saw it as enigmatic. Now, having thought about it a bit more, I've come to realize that her behavior was troubling. A sign that something was troubling her and wouldn't leave her alone. But as a simple 17-year-old boy, I didn't understand these things. I told my mom about Maisie's behavior, and she told me to be nice to her and be a gentleman. I remember one particular conversation we had. My father was at work, so it was just me and my mom in the kitchen. Mom? I began tentatively. Yes? You know that girl Maisie? Of course I know her. You're always talking about her. Well, she still hasn't made any friends. She literally doesn't talk. My mother smiled. And? Well, well, I I don't understand girls, and I just find it strange. Do you have any idea what could be the matter with her? (laughs) Really, Daniel, there's no need to pry into people's lives like that. It's nosy. But I'm sort of concerned, Mom, I said plaintively. That's sweet of you, but I'm sure you don't need to worry about her. Everyone has their own problems, and I think she'd prefer to keep them to herself. I thought about what my mother said, and wondered what kind of problems Maisie might have had. Do you mean, like, family problems? Are her parents getting divorced or something? Could be, but I doubt it. I've met her parents. They don't seem like they're splitting anytime soon. And they seem to be really nice people. I realized that I'd seen them once, too. They had seemed like nice people. They were the sort of gentle, charitable churchgoers who cared a lot about community and never skipped Sunday Mass. Their daughter was different. I figured that whatever was on her mind was something very personal that she hid from even her family. But whatever could that be? My simple masculine brain couldn't get over her mysterious sullenness. You know... My mother suggested one day. If you're concerned, you could go talk to her. Perhaps she just feels isolated at this new school. You never know. Might make her feel welcome here. I considered it. I might do that, I said. Yeah, I I, I might do that, Mom. I first spoke to Maisie Heathen on the way home from school. I wasn't expecting to cross paths with her as I had just had after-school detention. I was likely the only one at school apart from the caretaker. It was a chilly, blue-skyed evening in October, and the sun had sunk enough to slightly darken one half of the sky. The homeward path cut through farmland at the back of the school, where a path had been demarcated with low-wire fences on either side to keep students out of the fields. I noticed Maisie on the path, about 200 yards ahead of me. I realized this was my chance, and tried to walk faster to catch up with her and then ran. I noticed she looked downwards slightly when she walked, 
but she moved quickly, and I was a little out of breath when I caught up. That's when something weird happened. When I was about five yards behind her, panting like a dog, she heard me and turned around with such a look of fear upon her face. I'll never forget it. It scared the heck out of me seeing her face tighten into that silent, wide-eyed scream. When she saw who I was, she looked with embarrassment at her feet. I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to startle you. No, she said, shaking her head. I'm sorry, I, I thought... I'm sorry. Don't worry, I should learn to make better first impressions. I was running to catch up to you. Why? She turned fully around. Because... I tried to think of a reason. Eventually, I just told her the truth. Because I wanted to talk to you. We continued down the path through the fields, then exited onto a lane that led downtown, where I lived, and where she presumably lived. Maisie was surprisingly easy to talk to. Her manners were a little odd, but she responded to questions and even asked some about school-related stuff. I asked her what she thought of her new school. She shrugged and said, It's okay, I suppose. You mean you don't actually like it, I remarked. No, I'm indifferent, she said, and we walked quietly on for a while before she explained. We moved around a lot. I've been to so many schools that it makes no difference to me anymore. So, why do you move around? Is it because of your parents' work? She completely ignored that question. She said something to change the subject. can't remember what. I just remember it took me back how abruptly she changed the subject. We eventually parted ways at a crossroads. I told her that if she should feel lonely at school, she should feel welcome to approach me. She responded with a quiet smile. It was a sweet, genuine gesture of gratitude, but something about it sent a chill through me. I could see through those eyes of hers that she knew something I didn't, and that she'd been through things I couldn't fathom. It was a quietly haunting, fragile smile. I walked home, feeling glad that I'd broken the ice between us. Felt like I'd been a gentleman, whatever that meant. But somehow, something still didn't feel right. The first occurrence that struck me as genuinely odd took place later that year. I took a job cleaning the school on Fridays after school. It was a warm day in the early summer, and I had the tasks of cleaning the theater hall. It had been built sometime in the 1950s, and it was rather grand. The seats would be full and lively whenever there were performances. On that day, I thought I was the only one there. I was carrying the vacuum cleaner to a backstage room when suddenly the door to that room opened and a girl, white as a sheet, came out. I nearly screamed. It was Maisie Heathen. She'd been in the room all along, and she looked terrified as if she'd seen a ghost. Whoa, everything all right? I asked, laughing. She looked ready to burst into tears, then ran out of the hall, leaving me utterly confused. Suddenly, I felt afraid to enter the backstage room. What on earth was in there? What had scared her so badly? Against my instincts, I went in. There was no one there. 
I checked all of the potential hiding spaces and turned on every light and found nothing. Perplexed, I retrieved the vacuum and started cleaning. All the while I was in there, I had the sinking feeling in my stomach. The impression that something terrible would happen at any moment, causing me to hightail it out of there white as a sheet. But nothing happened. I vacuumed the place and got out of there quickly. I never raised the topic with Maisie. The year wore on and nothing of that level of weirdness happened. Many weeks later, however, something did happen. Not something weird. Something disturbing. Believe it or not, Maisie was actually beginning to fit in. She made some friends. Occasionally, she would engage verbally in lessons. This turned heads, as it was strange to see someone so silent, suddenly so vocal. Not that she was particularly outgoing. She was still quiet and understated, but it seemed as though some mysterious shadow had shifted away from her. There was a summer concert in which she played piano solo in front of the whole school. I applauded heartily. I gradually came to the conclusion that she simply had some form of anxiety earlier. Then, on the last day of term, school finished early. It was a summer day and I'd been planning on going to the movies with some friends. Turned out they were all going to a nearby nightclub that evening. I had no intention of joining them as I can't stand drinking or anything to do with it, so I settled on having a quiet evening at home. But as I set off along the homeward path through the fields, I noticed Maisie Heathen ahead of me just as it had been the first time we'd spoken. But it was high summer now, not fall, and the day was cloudless and she was at ease. Maisie! I called as I caught up. You got a moment? She turned around and nodded. We hadn't spoken in a while. As I walked, the sound of crickets in the grass filled the air. So, I said after much anticipation, do you like films? What? I said, do you like films? You know, movies? I don't mind them. Would you like to see one? Tonight, at the cinema? She seemed to be considering my offer because she simply smiled quietly to herself. And then she said yes. I expressed my gladness, and when she asked why I was asking her, I told her about my friends ditching me for a nightclub. That seemed to amuse her. Then I told her which movies were showing. She settled on a horror film, which surprised me. Horror, really. She didn't seem the type. It starts at 11.30, though, I warned her. Are you going to be able to come that late? Sure, I can. <laughs> then that's settled, I suppose. Shall I pick you up? I offered. Please. Where should I pick you up from? My house? I don't know where you live. On the way home, she told me where she lived. It was close to my own home. I went home and killed time until night fell. At 11, I drove my parents' car to her house. She didn't own a mobile phone, so I waited outside. All the while I waited, I felt, for no apparent reason whatsoever, a touch of dread. I had the radio on and was sitting comfortably in a car parked in a pleasant suburban neighborhood, but 
something outside seemed to be stirring. I kept looking out the windows, expecting to see... Well, not knowing what to expect to see. But there was definitely something about the place that night which was making me uneasy. I jumped when somebody opened the passenger side door and climbed in on the seat beside me. It was just Maisie. I hadn't seen the front door of her house open. Where did you come from? I asked. I could swear I never saw the front door open. I came through the back door, she explained. It's quieter and I don't want my parents to know that I'm going out. Oh, right. I realized then that I was doing something against her parents' will. I didn't want them to worry if they found her gone, and I didn't want to be the one responsible, but I guess I had no choice. Calling things off was out of the question at that point. The drive took 20 minutes or so, and aside from ours, there were only about five other cars in the lot. The cinema was barely a standalone building with a few hundred yards off the side of a lengthy 50-mile-an-hour road. Usually, theaters are downtown or a part of shopping malls, but this one was large, with its own parking area and nothing else around for miles. It was pretty nice, really, away from everything else. The only noise usually came from the road, but at 11.30, long after dark, even that lay silent. Beyond the cinema, woods seemed to stretch on endlessly. We bought our tickets and joined about a dozen other viewers in the theater. The film itself was about a demonic possession, and it was barely cliché. But it gave me the cheap thrill I'd paid for, and the audience screamed at least three times. Every now and then I glanced at Maisie. Something about the way she watched the film was strange. Rather than looking excited or bored or afraid how people usually look while watching a horror movie. She seemed intense and... angry? Maybe maybe not angry. It, it was more of a look of hatred. Not obvious, but subtle and cold. I found it disconcerting, but shrugged it off and told her I was going to the bathroom. Her expression relaxed into a pleasant smile as she nodded. Alone in the men's room, it was perfectly silent and relaxing. That is until I noticed footsteps moving about in the hall outside. I assumed somebody was coming to use the bathroom, but whoever they were didn't enter. Their feet slapped against the floors if they were barefoot, and there was a lot of time between each step, suggesting that whoever it was either had unusually long legs or was taking immense strides. I washed my hands and left the bathroom. Strangely enough, there was no one out there. Again, I shrugged it off and returned to my seat. When the movie was over, Maisie and I waited until the end of the credits, by which time everybody had left. Then we made our way out to the car. Wait, I left my pullover inside, she remembered just as we reached the car. Should I go get it for you? It's empty in there now. No, I'll go. You sure? Yeah. So, I slouched in the driver's seat and watched her hurry back inside in search of her pullover. She was pretty brave going in there alone. The place tended to be a bit spooky at this time. Creepily enough, mine was the only car left. I wondered if there was anyone else in that building with her. 
Why? I flicked on the radio and waited. When several minutes had gone by and she hadn't returned, I began to get nervous. I turned to open the door and froze. In the woods behind the cinema, there was a man standing, facing me. He was far away, but I saw clearly that there was something wrong with him. First of all, he was stark naked. His pale body, wiry and lean, was on full display. This began to sound alarm bells. The only rational explanation for his state of undress was that he might be an escaped mental patient, or perhaps he was a pervert. He could be dangerous, I realized. I got out of the car, and the man disappeared into the trees at once. I was getting increasingly uneasy. I decided to go find Maisie. Alone, eighteen-year-old girl in an empty building at night just seemed like something bad waiting to happen. But to my relief, she came out right then, wearing the pullover. We got into the car and shut the doors. I switched the radio on, and when the silence between us lasted too long, I asked her what kind of music she liked. I don't listen to music, she said. I half expected that answer, shook my head with a laugh. <laughs> but you play it quite well. She shook her head with a smile. I switched the radio off, remembering the man I'd seen. I reckon this would be a more interesting topic. I told her what I'd seen, and began to regret it. She became suddenly on edge, asking me where I'd seen him. I pointed at the trees, but he was no longer there. I need to go home now, she said, looking me squarely in the face. Please. Okay, I acquiesced. I didn't ask any questions. I started up the car and drove out of there in a hurry. We didn't talk until we left the theater far behind. I stole glances and saw that she was biting her nails. Something was bothering her. Something about the man's description, perhaps? I had no idea. I just kept driving. Several minutes later, I stopped midway along a country road and got out. Why are you stopping? She asked, clearly agitated. I just need some fresh air, I said. And that was the truth. Here? She asked. Even though we were alone, she continued looking around cautiously. It's nice here, I explained. Really, you should come out with me. I cycle along here with friends all the time. With some hesitation, she joined me. We leaned against the car while looking at the fields, which lay as far as the eye could see on one side of the road. On the other side were thick woods. On that quiet, warm night, it was nice to stand out and simply gaze at the fields. In spite of her earlier unease, Maisie seemed to feel more and more comfortable where we were. Perhaps it was the pleasant view before us, or the fresh air, or... Perhaps it was the excitement of being out at night. Whatever it was, something made her forget about whatever had frightened her. I told her about how I had once been roughly at this same spot with some friends at sunrise and how beautiful it had been. Then she opened up and told me about how she was honestly finding living in this town and going to school. 
We laughed a little bit about the antics of our French teacher and even discussed poetry we were studying. Occasionally, we would say nothing and simply take in the cool night air. During one such silence, I felt a sudden, inexplicable pang of dread. Unsure why, I turned to look back at the road. What I saw flooded me first with confusion and then utter disbelief and then relentless, creeping fear. The naked man from the cinema was there, standing less than a hundred yards away. How? I wondered. How was he there already? More chilling, however, was the question of why. What did he want? When I had first seen him, I hadn't thought much of him beside that he might be a potentially dangerous pervert. But where he stood in the moonlight, other odd details became clear. He appeared to be very tall, emaciated, apparently suffering from starvation, and yet his thighs and shoulders appeared bulky and disproportionately muscular. There was something disturbing about his face as well. It looked blotchy and deformed, like a melted plastic clown mask. Perhaps it was a mask. From my vantage point, I couldn't quite tell for certain. Uh, I think we should get in the car, I said. Huh? Why? She said, turning to me. Then she stiffened, and I knew she had seen him too. Hey, come on. Get in the car, quick. I began to breathe heavily. She didn't seem to hear me. She looked as though she were in another dimension. I opened the door and tried to usher her inside, but she was alarmingly firm. The stalker stood still. The more I watched him, the less I thought of him as a person, and the more I thought of him as... something else. There was something disturbing and inhuman about his face. His presence stank of raw, otherworldly menace. He moved. He began to sprint toward us. Maisie took off. I knew she was fast, but I'd never seen her run like she ran then. It was as though she'd been maddened by pure terror and lost control. Shit, I cried, fumbling with my car door. My hands were sweaty and felt weak, as if enfeebled by the fear of the stalker. Looking back, I was shocked by waves of cold panic. He was quick, demonically quick. There was no way she could escape him on foot, let alone me. I overtook her in the car and called repeatedly from the window. Hearing me, eventually she got in. And I put my foot on the gas and drove like there was no tomorrow. I expected to see the stalker in the rearview mirror. Instead, I saw nothing but an empty road. It was as if he had never been there in the first place. I didn't dare say a thing throughout the drive home. My thoughts ran in silence, and it wasn't until I stopped outside her house that she spoke. No, she whispered. Take me to your house. I don't want to go home. Sure, sure. I was baffled, but I didn't want to fluster her by asking why. Not a problem. So we drove a few more streets to my house, entered through a back door, climbed to the stairs to my room, and closed the door firmly. I drew the curtains and turned on a reading lamp. Feel free to take the bed. Don't worry, I'll sleep on the armchair. I smiled and felt 
ridiculous for acting as though nothing had happened. She got under the covers without a word and hid her face in her hair. I settled down, still shaking on my chair. Don't leave, she said. It was more of a plea. It made something within me go soft. Trust me, I won't, I said. That's the last thing she said before somehow falling asleep. I sat there for hours, trying to make sense of what had happened. Something about that strange man had really shaken Maisie up, so much so that she couldn't sleep in her own home. Why not? Did she think he'd follow her there? I realized that my mother would be most dismayed if she found me with a girl in my room at night, but I was her friend and hated to see her so afraid. I couldn't have said no. She slept a few feet before me, breathing calmly, apparently in peace. But I knew that something was troubling her. I got the terrible feeling that the weird, distorted, clown-faced man was somehow connected with her strange behavior. No, absolutely not. This was a random, one-off incident, I told myself. But then why was she so afraid of him? Why did the mere description of the man arouse such immediate and disproportionate fear? Does she know him? How? Who is he, anyway? There were too many questions, and my head was too tired to contemplate them. Eventually, from the exhaustion of sitting upright, I began to doze off. I was lulled to sleep by the hum of the night breeze, the quiet whir of the fridge downstairs, and the soothing sound of footsteps. Of bare skin slapping slowly against concrete outside as if whoever was out there had unnaturally long legs. After the incident at the movie theater, Maisie more or less stopped talking to me. I didn't hold it against her. I assumed she just needed time, but weeks passed and she kept silent. During the last week of school, I passed her in the hallway and we made eye contact. She forced a wry, short-lived smile. Daniel, she spoke at last. I... She sighed and hurried away without finishing what she wanted to say. On the last day, I slipped my number into her locker, in case she ever wanted to get in touch. She never did. The summer months dragged by. Another semester at the university began. Years passed. Before I knew it, I forgot much of what had happened. You'd think someone would remember things like that, but no. It was almost as if my brain was deliberately trying to erase the memories. After what David had said at the reunion, things came flooding back. I revisited the archives of my memory and was frightened by what I'd found. I spent the following days strolling around town, thinking nonstop about the whole frightening affair, trying desperately to understand. About a week later, I was going for a run in my hometown and crossed paths with someone I hadn't seen in years. 
Maisie's father. He'd lost weight, not to mention quite a bit of his hair, but I knew him at once. He didn't notice me until I said hello, and seemed only to vaguely remember me, which was upsetting. We stood, talking about what I'd been up to in college and stuff. Then there was a pregnant pause, and I dared to mention the topic of his daughter's disappearance. Look, Mr. Heathen, I heard recently about Maisie. I'm devastated. He looked up at me through his old-fashioned glasses with a tragic, defeated look in his eyes. Young man, he said softly, this world has things in store for some people that seem so unjust, so cruel, that they test our faith in the Almighty. But we must keep the faith. It's all I have now. That and Mrs. Heathen. I waited for him to carry on. Instead, he tenderly took one of my hands in his. It chilled me how frail he seemed for his age. What's troubling you, boy? He asked. You seem to have something on your mind. I... I do, I admitted. If you wish, you may tell me. Let's go to the house of God. I didn't know what he meant until he gestured to the church. Evil things won't follow us there. Shortly, we were seated beside one another in the old town church. It was always open and always empty, apart from Sundays when a few regulars would attend. I described to me as his father how I had often felt concerned about his daughter. I told him a lot, but I didn't mention that night at the cinema. He listened intently, sighed, and then spoke. Mrs. Heathen can't bring herself to accept it, but deep down I know that Maisie was afraid something. I think you'll have noticed that she could sometimes be withdrawn, perhaps a bit unresponsive, as if she were not quite fully present. I nodded. Well, he continued, she wasn't always like that. He reached into his breast pocket and handed me a photo. I knew at once that it was his daughter, only she was several years younger than when I'd known her. It was a school photo. She was smiling. It was a carefree, sincere expression, untouched by any underlying anxiety. I'm not sure what it was, but something in her changed when she was 13. I think I know what had happened. You see, we lived for a short time in another part of the country, in a small rural town up north. There were woods near the village that had a reputation for being unwholesome, haunted even. The place had a dark history according to the locals. Work brought me there and we were new in town. Maisie didn't fear the superstitions. One night at a sleepover, she and a few friends had made a local school, thought it would be exciting to go for a walk through those woods. What happened? Nothing happened, he replied, then hesitated. Not at first, that is. But things began to happen soon after. 
I don't understand. I fear that something followed her home that night. Something from those woods latched onto her and never let go. Some thing? Something, he explained. An evil being, a demon, if you will. Whatever it was, it haunted her, and when we left town, it followed. He paused a moment, reflecting, and then went on. Something much at first, just nightmares. Then she complained about a presence in the corner of her bedroom. Naturally, that was unsettling, but nothing came of it. We put it down at first to her watching too many horror films, then she stopped eating, and then she had trouble sleeping. She demanded that we take down the mirrors in our house. We didn't know what to think. I got the first feelings that something unnatural was happening, but I wasn't sure. I never once saw anything unusual with my own eyes, but sometimes I'd admit I'd go into her room at night and feel the hairs stand up on my neck inexplicably. She'd go through phases of extreme paranoia followed by extended periods of normalcy. Whatever it was kept coming back. Mr. Heathen, I said, my voice shaking to my surprise. Did she ever describe what this thing looked like? Never. Maisie avoided talking about it. I don't even know if it had a visible form. I couldn't help but think of the man outside the cinema, his elongated body, his hideous deformity, his strange, threatening aura. I tried to remove the image from my mind. Her father carried on. Before she vanished, Maisie rented a waterfront cottage in a remote area. She told nobody about it apart from a university professor whom she trusted. It was a strange thing for her to do. Her family has no affiliation with the area, nor had she been there before to my knowledge. The cottage was totally isolated, miles from civilization. It was as if she wanted to escape everything. It didn't make sense. Then she didn't return. Police searched the area thoroughly, but there was no trace or clue to be found. No signs of foul play, but they did find one clue. What? Her clothes. They were left in the cottage. Odd thing is that they were not strewn all over the place, as you might expect. Rather, they'd been neatly folded and laid on the bed. I'd hoped the conversation would help me to better understand the mystery, but the more Maisie's father told me, the more questions I had. What do you make of it all? I asked. He replied in a hushed voice. I think, young man, that this was something from beyond our world. Grief has toughened me, but it pains me when I say this. I think that something evil lured her to that cottage, cut her off from society, and left her vulnerable. Then one day she was stranded in that obscure part of the world it came for. I saw the old man's eyes watering. He wept at my side for a while. I couldn't do anything. No words of consultation could have helped. He dried his eyes and smiled weakly. 
I'm afraid I gotta cut this conversation short, he said remorsefully. My wife will be waiting. She's not feeling too well. I thanked him and apologized profusely. As he turned to leave, I called out to him, saying that I still had his photograph. Keep it, he said. What? No, I protested. I couldn't take this. You seem like a good man, he said, coming back and putting a hand on my shoulder. You were kind to my daughter, behaved like a gentleman. Made me glad for you to have that photograph. Mr. Heathen, please. It's nothing. Take care, young man. Never abandon your faith in the Lord. And with that, he turned and was gone. I was left standing in the church alone. Evening was approaching, and shafts of moody golden sunlight shone through the stained glass windows, its rays illuminating the pews and carpets. I peered at the photo in my hand. What happened to you, Maisie? I asked out loud. Where did you go? For an unnerving moment, I half expected the photograph to answer me. I hurried out of there and ran home. I don't think I'll ever know what happened to Maisie Heathen. As uncomfortable as it makes me, I sometimes believe it really was a demon that was making her life so miserable. I can only hope that someday I'll receive a more rational, logical explanation. Until recently, I had a habit of keeping my dorm room door unlocked, believing, ridiculously, that someday she might come looking for me. I used to sleep with her photograph in a silver frame on my bedside table. As strange as it may sound, it helped put me at ease. And then one morning, I woke up to find that someone had entered my room during the night and stolen the photo. What I found the most unnerving is that they took nothing else. Not even the frame.